You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. I'll be reading from Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up, when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Megan. And uh, good afternoon, everybody. If you haven't met me before, my name is Luke. I'm the lead pastor here. Well, last week I was reading a book about Cyclone Tracy by the author Sophie Cunningham. On December the 24th, Christmas Eve, 1974, uh, this enormous cyclone hit Australia's northernmost city, The region is, of course, prone to tropical cyclones, but this was something else, something altogether different. Wind gusts of up to 275 kilometres an hour. Uh, You can actually find a recording of it on YouTube, and it's just horrifying listening to the sound of this wind and made worse by the fact that it was ripping corrugated iron off all the buildings and and this corrugated iron was scraping down the streets as someone described it as like millions of fingernails running down a blackboard. The force of the wind did extraordinary things. Cockatoos had their feathers sucked off them. Petrol was sucked out of petrol tanks and air out of car tyres and one person said that houses were rocking like boats at sea. One man stuck out in the open, tied himself to a pillar to stop himself from flying away. Others spoke of caravans flying through the air across the road. In fact, there's an iconic photo of uh, a hotel pool with a couple of cars submerged in the water. The destruction was complete. 70% of homes were destroyed. Cunningham writes that walls are described as melting 
And one man describes being sucked out of his roofless house as if he was riding a magic carpet. Shards of broken glass swirled around rooms as if in a giant blender. Officially, 71 people died and 163 were stated as missing, though it's thought that those numbers could be much higher. And when you look at the photos afterwards, the place looks like it's just been bombed. It looks like Hiroshima after the atom bomb. Everything was lost. Uh, fearing disease, a massive operation was undertaken to uh, airlift people out, leaving less than a quarter of the population to begin the cleanup. There was 47,000 people living in the city at the time, and they managed to get 35,000 out. Um, some people returned in the months that followed, but many remained in exile, away from the place they called home, struggling to find a new place to belong. And those who did return faced the daunting task of rebuilding, of starting from scratch. And after reading this book, I realised that that's what this moment in the Bible feels like. Today we begin our new series looking at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, books that come after this great storm has come through in the story of God's people, Israel. Uh, the history of Israel really begins effectively in Genesis 12. That's when a man called Abram or Abraham is given a spectacular promise. Genesis 12 verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, these promises really define the people of God and, and shape their uh, direction. Abraham's family will become a great nation, chosen by God, his treasured possession. God will give them a land, a land that he has set apart for them, that flows with milk and honey. He's going to take them to that land where they will live under his rule. He'll give them his law so that they know how to live, what God's design is for their lives and if they follow that, they will become a blessing to the nations, a light to the world. God will work through them in his world to shine the light and glory of God and draw people to him. So here we have this vision of God's people under God's rule living in God's land. And as you read through the, through the first half of the Old Testament, you see God's people receive these promises, these blessings, but then lose them. You see, Israel became a great kingdom under uh, the great kings of David and Solomon. Uh, they were militarily powerful and became very wealthy. Uh, David received promises, further promises from God, that he would make a great nation out of him and that there would be a, a king from his line, one of his descendants, who would rule forever. However, Solomon's son, uh, Rehoboam, uh, was a contemptuous and headstrong bloke and he started a fight with some other people in his kingdom and, and it split the kingdom into two halves. The northern kingdom, which became known as Israel, about 10 tribes from there, and then the southern kingdom, which was known as Judah, the tribe of Judah, were down there. And so the fortunes of these nations kind of rose or fell depending on the kind of king who was ruling over them. In Israel, they had a lot of terrible leaders. As you read through the stories of them, you see again and again it says, and he did what was evil in the, sight, in the eyes of the Lord. So the people would fall away with that until eventually God gave them up 
and allowed the Assyrians to take over the nation. 2 Kings 17, this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. They did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they were told that God sent his messengers, his prophets, to warn them and bring them back, but they would not listen. They were stubborn. They abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None of them was left but the tribe of Judah only. But tragically, Judah would follow. 150 years later, they would also fall into sin in the same kind of way, repeatedly doing the wrong thing and ignoring the prophets that God sent until the same fate befell them. The end came over a period of about 25 years and three kings. In about 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem and besieged the city. Uh, The king Jehoiachin surrendered. He was taken prisoner and the temple was kind of stripped of all of the golden vessels that they'd used to worship God, taken back to the temples of the Babylonian gods. And then another couple of generations later, God's patience came to an end. 2 Chronicles 36, God brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hands and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile into Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons. It is a total defeat. Nothing is left. This precious land that God had given them has been overrun. The temple has been desecrated. The people have been decimated, killed or carted off into exile. The storm of God's judgment has gone through and everything is gone. And yet even now, even in this dark moment, hope can be found. You see, even as God pronounced and warned his people about judgment on them and the exile, he promised that it would only last 70 years. And so even here, God was looking forward from the exile to the return. And that's where Ezra and Nehemiah pick up the story. The books of Ezra and and Nehemiah are really just one book and they cover a period of about 100 years and it charts God's people returning to the land that God had given them that they'd lost because of their sin, but now God was showing mercy and bringing them home. And today I want to point out uh, just really two big ideas, that God is always working for his people, and secondly, God works in his people to fulfill his promises. So first of all, God is working for his people. You see, when we read the passage that we read today, it would, at first glance, it might seem like someone else is bringing them home. This great big dude, Cyrus, uh, makes this big proclamation. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord. 
And then a few verses later, he even says, you can even take all of those golden vessels, all of that treasure, you can take that back to the temple. And it's an extraordinary moment. Here we have this foreign king offering them everything and making it clear that he wants to bless them, essentially. And this chap, Cyrus, is a a fascinating bloke, also known as Cyrus the Great. Uh, He reigned for about 30 years and under his rule, he really expanded uh, the, the Persian Empire to an enormous uh, degree. It kind of, by the end, it stretched from Turkey all the way through Iraq and Iran, uh, right across to India, and then as far north as Turkmenistan and the old Soviet republics. Like, this was a massive empire. And as he, over, as he expanded this empire, he overcame the Babylonians, and so uh, that meant that God's people were under his rule. He kind of inherited them. And when you first read this passage, it almost seems like he has a real soft spot for the Jews, for God's people. Perhaps even that he's become a believer. He speaks of the Lord, the God of heavens, the the heavens. And so you, you kind of wonder, maybe he's on the right team here. Well, that would be really nice, but it's probably a little bit more complicated than that. His actions are in part just political. You see, his empire was so massive that they had to kind of uh, split up how they would lead it and they would actually send people back to their homes so that they could lead those, uh, they'd get a local leader underneath the supervision of the Persians. But there was also a religious element to this. Back at this time, everyone believed that there were different gods for different nations and that if you entered into a nation, that you kind of came under their gods. It was their postcode, so to speak. And so uh, the Persians have these gods, and then he figures that the Jews have their own gods. So he speaks of the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. He figures that that's the God that kind of owns that space. But also when you defeated a different nation, you would kind of collect their gods. He imagined probably that Each of these gods had helped him win the battles and conquer different nations, and so they were now part of his team. They were kind of his resource that he could draw on. And so he probably sees the Jewish God like that. He thinks of Yahweh as just another God who is now on his team, and so he can ask uh, him to do stuff for him. So here, he's he's hoping that by uh, sending the Jews back home, Yahweh will bless him. But it always, to him, it feels like he's in control. We can see it from a different angle. You see, I think this passage makes it very clear. There's not Cyrus or any of his gods who's in control. It's the one true God who's in control. See how it's described in verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. See, it's God who's doing this. The Lord stirred up, moved the spirit of Cyrus. And this is actually all part of God's long-term plan. It happens so that the word of the Lord spoken by the prophet Jeremiah might be fulfilled. And actually, if you look at the prophecies, it's kind of spooky and awesome how accurate they are. In Jeremiah 25, uh, The prophet says, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So long before it all happened, Jeremiah was saying, here's the judgment that's going to happen. You're going to be sent into exile. But he's also saying, after 70 years, you'll come home. He's predicting it exactly, even though it's maybe 100 years before it happens. The prophet Isaiah spoke 100 years even before that. And he says something similar. 
He says of uh, Osiris, he shall build my city and set my exiles free. He is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. That's what God says. And so the message here is that God is in control. That even Cyrus, this great king, is under his hand. See, the, the return of God's people from exile begins with a word. It sounds like it's Cyrus making this great proclamation. But actually, the word comes even before that. It's the word of God's prophecy, the word of God's promises. And he is so powerful that he can work out his plan even through his enemies. Cyrus acts, but he acts because God has stirred up his heart. Proverbs 21, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So God is in control and he is working. And I want you to see he is working for his people. Like This is quite extraordinary. They have repeatedly disobeyed him, defied him. They've gone exactly against all that he has said. They've ignored his warnings. And ultimately, they've felt the consequences of this. But still, God shows mercy to them. Yes, there are consequences, but he kind of limits them. He wants them to come home as soon as possible. See the character of God here. God is bent towards grace. He doesn't enjoy he doesn't enjoy judging. And he wants constantly to show mercy and grace. Jeremiah 21 verse 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. You've probably heard that verse in lots of churches. It's a very famous verse. I want you to see the original context here that God is saying, I want my people to come home. I have this great vision for them, a glorious vision. God is always working for his people. And then secondly, God is always working in his people. You see, God has stirred up the heart of Cyrus to make this great big proclamation to, to tell people that they can go home, but now they have to respond to that. Now, at first glance, that might seem like a no-brainer. I mean, why wouldn't they want to go back? See, in my mind, when I think of them in exile, I kind of imagine it was a bit similar to when they were enslaved in Egypt under the pharaohs. But actually, it's a little bit different. Uh, from Jeremiah 29, we get the impression that actually life in exile was quite different to when they were in Egypt, and it was actually a lot more comfortable. We know that they were uh, encouraged and able to uh, have families, to, to marry, to settle down. We also know from the book of Daniel that uh, some of their Young people were called into uh, being leaders within Babylon, Babylonian society. They were given wealth and opportunity. And in fact, Jeremiah says, Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So he's kind of saying, make a, make a home there. Put down roots. Get comfortable there. And so it would have been really easy... God's people to stay there. It would have been hard to leave. I was talking about Cyclone Tracy and how difficult it was for people to resettle it. Many people resented the fact that they were kind of uprooted and taken away. They didn't get a choice. But even then, there was about 15,000 people, a third of the city, that never returned. You see, to return, they had to face the great challenges of rebuilding. 
And that's what God's people face here as well. Yes, they're in exile in Persia, but they have some level of security, perhaps even comfort. They know what to expect. And then to go back home to their land is to face challenges, to start the work from scratch, to live the pioneer, the settler's life. That's going to be hard. As Robert File puts it, only a real sense of spiritual priority would have moved even some of the people to return. So they should be commended for it. I actually think that's one of the reasons why we have Ezra chapter 2. Uh, if you look across on your phones or the next page of your, your Bible, you'll see that Ezra 2 is a very long list of names. You're probably thinking the Bible has a lot of these lists. What, why is it, what does it mean? Well, one of the things here is that it's a kind of honour roll. It's to honour the 43,260 people who made this trek. They wanted, God wants to say these people showed courage. They showed dignity. So God honours them. God is working in the hearts of these people. You see how it's described in verse 5. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone in whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Do you see that? Just as God stirred up the heart of Cyrus and moved him to do something, now God is stirring up the heart of his people. God works for his people and in his people. And then I think as you read through chapter 2, you also see what God is doing in his people, how he's shaping them and moulding them. Uh, I, obviously, the, I didn't understand this the first time I read through Ezra 2, but I read some commentaries and I picked up some great stuff in there. And basically, you can see in chapter 2 the way that they're kind of, the things that they're prioritising and how they're being structured as God's people. First of all, you'll notice that the people are listed by families and by hometowns, that the sons of Parash, the sons of Shephatiah, they're listed by their towns, the sons of Bethlehem, the men of Natopha, the men of Anathos, etc., this is to say that these people have a context. I don't know if you've ever seen that show on SBS, Who Do You Think You Are? It basically gets a, they get a celebrity and they take this person through a tour of their ancestry, uh, showing them who their ancestors were, where they lived, what their lives were like. And as the person's following along with this, they're starting to get an idea of who they are, where they come from, their context. And I think the same thing's happening here. God's people have spent two, three generations in exile away from their home and they're going to return and so God wants them to know their context, where they come from, what their family is, where their hometown is. They're probably going to go back to these towns and rebuild them. He wants them to, to reform. God is working in his people to understand who they are, to rebuild their identity. And the second thing I notice here is the importance given to worship. So you'll see that uh, all of the people who will lead worship are listed. The priests from verse 36, the Levites from verse 40, the temple servants from verse 43. And this really shows that they're prioritising the right things. They want to get worship right. See, this was at the heart of the problems way back when. They had failed to worship God the right way and so they turned away from him and strayed from what he had in intended for them and so as they come back they want to get it right they want to fix that up they want to get make sure that that's the first thing that they do well 
and this is to their credit. And yet it actually emphasises how bad things have gotten in the past. You see, when the priests are mentioned in verse 36, they're broken down into four families, the sons of Jediah, the sons of Imma, Pasha and Harim. Originally, when the priesthood was set up, there was actually 24 families, and now it's shrunk down to four. That actually points to the tragedy of the exile. At some point along the way, 20 of those families have been killed or have died off to, as a consequence of them straying away from God. There's, there's a real sadness and tragedy in this. This is the fruit of their sin. They continually disobeyed God and these were the consequences. And yet even here, we see the thread of God's promises. See, God's people are constituted by promise, by his word of promise. Everyone in the list of people who goes back can trace their lineage ultimately back to Abraham and that promise in Genesis 12. There's also some who can trace their lineage to David and the promise that God made that he would raise up a king who would save and rule his people forever. And so as they look at this list of names, they can see God's promises right back and then through David and into the future. Take Zerubbabel, he's there in chapter 2 verse 2, he's one of the leaders of the people. He's actually a grandson of Jehoiachin, and so he's, who was the king, right? So he's linked back to David. And so when they see Zerubbabel, they can see back to God's faithfulness and then they can trust God's faithfulness for the future. Because of the promise made to David, now held by Zerubbabel, the line is continuing. And so even as they step into the unknown and the uncertainty and the difficulty of rebuilding everything, they can know that God will send their Messiah, their hero. And you know, Zerubbabel turns up later on in another genealogy, in another list of names. In Matthew chapter 1, we read the genealogy of Jesus. And who's in there? Zerubbabel. It's a proof that the thread of God's promises flow right through the Bible, back to Abraham, through David, all the way to Jesus and beyond. See, when Jer Jerusalem fell and the people went off into exile, it must have seemed like everything was lost and the thought of rebuilding would have been too much. But here we see in this group of people, revival the start of something new. God's word never fails. God works for his people, in his people, to fulfill his promises. He made a promise to Abraham and he kept it, a people, a land, a blessing. He made a promise to David, a king who would rule forever. God's people made promises and they kept breaking them, they kept failing in them. But God's promises never failed. They never broke. So we can be sure he will always keep his promises for his people. And we need to hear that today. See, the Bible tells us that if we believe in Jesus, the great hero that God promised, we too are part of God's people. And that God's people now are not just the descendants of Abraham. We don't have to find our lineage that way. We find our lineage by trusting in Jesus. And now we can be part of God's people. 
And that means we are part, we can be sure that God's promises will keep rolling on for us. We can hold on to that thread. And we need to hear that today because it would be easy for us to feel like this is a dark day for God's people, that this is a time either of exile or the challenge of rebuilding. See, the church in Australia is in decline. The portion of Australians identifying as as Christians has uh, declined rapidly over the last century. It was 96% in uh, 1911 and 61% in 2011. Church attendance has more than halved in 50 years. And this is something seen in much of the Western world. In uh, 25 years ago, 70% of Americans said that they belonged to a church. That number was down to 47% in 2020. I actually think that the last couple of years has has accelerated this decline. Uh, COVID lockdowns kept people out of churches for uh, a couple of years and lots of churches are reporting that it's very hard to get people back in. The church is in decline. And it's clear also that we are in a a post-Christian age where the very idea of Christendom seems a long way off. There's no new big cathedrals being built The Christian values that by default have underpinned our society have eroded and are being attacked. As we saw in our previous series, 1 Peter, it can feel like increasingly we're like exiles pushed to the edges of our culture. Sometimes we might even feel like we're exiles within the church. I mean, there's always been dodgy theologians and pastors through the ages, people who deny the supernatural, reject the idea of the resurrection, but it can feel even more pervasive now as people go with the flow of what the culture is saying, regardless of what God says. I was just reading this afternoon about a bishop in Sweden who has recommended that churches get rid of crosses and instead create Muslim prayer spaces. Like this is in a church. It doesn't make sense to say that. And yet as the church burns... God's people fiddle. Often we're divided, so consumed by culture wars or left and right politics that we're forgetting our common Lord and Saviour. Or we're sabotaging our own witness to the world by our sin. There's always been hypocrites and frauds, people who speak a big game and then fail to live it up. But I don't know about you, but right now, perhaps it's just because of social media and the internet, it just feels like every week there's someone who falls, someone we know falls into sin, someone we respect. It would be easy to feel like everything is dark, that this is a bad time to be one of God's people, that this is a time of exile. But this is where God gets to work. You see, in Ezra, God revived his people with his promises. He promised that he would bring them back from exile. And so we too must hold on to his promises. Matthew 16, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus promises to protect and build his church. In fact, he has this beautiful vision for his church. Revelation 7, there's a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. This is God's promise and it will happen. 
In fact, it's already starting to happen. You see, while the Western world is now post-Christian, the rest of the world is becoming Christian. At least 70% of Christians worldwide live outside Western countries. There are more Presbyterians now in Ghana than in the US and the UK. There's more Anglicans in Nigeria than those countries. And the same story can be experienced among us as well if we respond to God's stirring. See, God can stir the nations. He can stir up the powerful like Cyrus, but he also wants to stir us up to get us moving, to revive us, to set us to rebuilding this world if we're willing to respond. I've mentioned the author Mark Sayers a few times recently. He's written a couple of excellent books, uh, Disappearing Church and Reappearing Church. Thankfully, there's a sequel. Um, <laughs> in, the, in the first book, he, he charts the decline of the church, its diminished influence, its apparent irrelevance, its weakness, its fragility. But in the second, he offers a vision for its revival, a message of hope. But it starts by us going inward to accept the darkness, not just that's out there, but in here, in the church, and even more inside ourselves. You see, we're part of the problem. And things won't change unless we change first. We see this in Ezra and Nehemiah too. Over the coming weeks, we'll see God keeping his promises, sending them out there to his people, bringing them home. We'll see the people try to keep those promises a number of times. They make these great big commitments to be, to be faithful, to keep God's law, to do better. But we'll also see them fail, stumble, just like their ancestors had, just like we will. Because humans always do this. We, we always do. We we fall short. But that's not to make us pessimistic or to give up. See, renewal and revival, rebuilding, begins with a grief over our sin and a recognition of God's mercy. See, God wants us to draw near to him in our failings, in the ways that we're unfaithful, he wants us to draw near to him because he promises that he will always forgive if we come to him, if we trust in Jesus. He wants to flood us so deeply with an experience of his grace that then we go out and share that with the world. We become agents of the king, assessing our lives by his rules and by his way and then bringing his values into the world to rebuild. And all of this points to God's word, his word of promise. That's what undergirds the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, and that's what undergirds our story as well. Everything points to God's word, and all of God's word points to Jesus, points to how he fulfills all the prophecies, how he gives us hope and a new power, a new strength, how he even gives us God living within us to reform and change us. And anyone who trusts in Jesus will become part of his people and part of his work in the world. So there's plenty of lists of names in the Bible, but my favourite might be the one that's referred to in, in Revelation 21. 
It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. It's a list of anyone, of all those people, who had the humility to own their sin, to bring it to God, to receive his forgiveness, to trust in what Jesus has done. And then the courage to step out, to step into God's plans, to be a part of God's work in the world. These are his people. And God always works for his people and in his people to fulfill his promises. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for this passage. We want to thank you for this story of Ezra and Nehemiah. As we enter it today, uh, please help us to uh, be ready to listen and to learn from it. Lord, it might uh, be easy to feel like this is a dark time for your people in this world. Easy to be discouraged. Lord, help us not to be. Help us to trust your promises and to recognize your power. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1, Paul prays that we would know your greatness, that the Father of glory may give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us, what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is, your immeasur- what is the immeasurable greatness of your power towards us who believe. Lord, we saw last week that this power raised Christ from the dead, overcame sin and death. So it can overcome anything. Lord, may it overcome the sin in our hearts. May we have a resurrection of our hearts and our lives so that we can be the start of a new thing, of you rebuilding, of you rebuilding us our churches, our families, our world around us. Lord, help us to leave with hope tonight that you are at work for your people and in your people, fulfilling your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.